0: A podcast from Premier Unbelievable.
1: Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, Professor John White. Hello there. Hi, Tim. Good to be here. And we're really pleased to say that we're uh, resuming our conversation with um dr sephora tang uh from canada hi sephora hello um sephora is a psychiatrist uh and and we've been talking last week um uh, about how euthanasia kind of came to be legalized in canada and how the kind of eligibility criteria have been gradually expanding and slipping um including in likely in the near future to expand to to people who are only suffering from from mental health conditions um so far i wanted to dig a bit more into your experience as a psychiatrist working in this kind of new normal in canada um is it a, a, does it come up often in your day-to-day work do you find patients either kind of asking you for made or or colleagues recommending that this this patient or that patient might be eligible
2: <clears throat> well because the the law has not yet expanded yet to include mental illness legally so the requests have not been coming in um you know, to that extent yet. But I do know that I have some patients who are already contemplating it and have asked me about it. And so I will speak to them because I want to understand their underlying reasons for why they're wanting to access medical assistance in dying or MAID is an acronym that we use in Canada. I usually approach this as any other request um, or, you know, when we assess for suicidal ideations, Um, in patients and and they respond affirmatively, I still have a duty as a psychiatrist to understand what that is. And my approach is that a request for medical assistance in dying is an expression of somebody's suicidal ideations. And so the first step to do that is just to try to uh, understand what their underlying distress is and see if we can uh, address those things. And oftentimes what I hear is this overwhelming sense of uh, loneliness and isolation fear of the unknown, fear of not being supported, uh, fear of losing the support of their caregivers, and what are they going to do? And I've had conversations like this, and I suggested, well, what if we can help you with some of these things? What if we can help you to find some supportive living and people can help you with paying the bills and the finances and ensure that your needs are taken care of and that you can eat? Would that change your mind? And oftentimes it would. They would sort of retract their desire to continue accessing an assisted death. Unfortunately, with this law now coming down the pipes and patients being coming, becoming aware of it are saying, well, I'm just gonna wait until the law changes and then I'm going to access it anyway. And they're speaking in a time when they're feeling emotionally distressed. Um, and I, I've heard some of my patients say to me, if medical assistance in dying was not available for mental illness, and yes, I would try these other supports first. Um, but if it was available, I think I would just rather opt for an assisted death before trying these alternative routes. And the, the concerning thing about the Canadian law is that patients do not have a legal, um, it's not mandated legally that they try all available treatments. They could de- decline treatment, for example, someone who has cancer does not want to receive chemotherapy and still be made eligible for an assisted death. And if you apply this to mental illness, it becomes even more concerning uh, that we would offer essentially an assisted suicide if a patient has uh, declined certain standard treatments. Now, obviously that's not the the policy that we want to be um, you know enacting, but legally from a legal perspective, there's nothing that could stop a patient from accessing a medically-assisted death if their physician, so again, this is the subjective determination of the assessor, feels like it would be appropriate for that patient to decline treatment and still access a medically-assisted death. So I think this is the reason why there needs to be uh, stricter um, and better standards to, to guide, and, and this, is, this is currently missing in the Canadian legal context.
0: And could you say what's happening in your own hospital out, outside of the psychiatric areas, in in the areas where there may be uh, patients with cancer or with motor neurone disease, we talked about last week, uh, who feel that their life is not worth living, uh, and who, um, are, are physicians routinely raising this as, as an option? Is, or are they waiting for the patient to raise? how How is it actually working in practice?
2: So uh, I think this is an area that's a bit uh, contentious, um, because do bear in mind that under the law, it is uh, it is still a crime to um, sort of persuade somebody to end their life you know, as a as a suicide, to
0: assisted
2: suicide um, as, as, as an assisted suicide you know the, the law carved out that it's uh, legal under certain parameters so how do you interpret this within like a clinical setting then if if a physician is going to raise this unsolicited how much of that is perceived or experienced by the patient as someone that is encouraging uh mm. their suicide <clears throat> and so um, I'm not going to speak for my hospital specifically, but we do know that patients have had experiences where physicians have raised the option of medically assisted death unsolicited. Um, and I guess there's two different views on this, but I know in our, at our college level, like the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, which grants physicians are licensed to practice, they recently had a consultation on medical assistance in dying. and. If you read the, the, the policy that they're consulting on, um, it's very clear that they sort of expect, uh, they, they quoted a, a CAMAP, so that CAMAP is the Canadian, uh, I forget what it stands for, but it's the Association of Canadian um, Physicians that provide made and, and assess for medically assisted death. Uh, but that document very strongly recommended that, pa- that physicians do initiate the discussion and to put medically assisted death on the table even without the patients soliciting it or inquiring about it um, if the physician felt that this was an appropriate like you know if they met the legal criteria for it um, and that it was appropriate that the, the physician themselves should raise it so um, this raises a, a many more new concerns about how this would affect the patient uh, physician dynamic. Um, I mean, if if you were, the father of a of a, a child who you know above the age of eighteen, an adult, but had a mental illness and was severely depressed, and you took them to see your family doctor or or the psychiatrist, and you're expecting that the physician is going to try to help, your daughter, um, and the physician turns around and you know depending on the trajectory of your daughter's case, then proposing that. Assisting in her suicide would be an appropriate response to her suffering I think most parents would be rightly concerned that this could be a scenario that they would face If you add on another disability to your your daughter's presentation um, You know, maybe she got in a car accident and she's suffering from a traumatic brain injury, you know, this could happen to any of us Um, How does a physician who is working in a system where medically assisted death is legal then perceive the quality of life or the value of the life of your daughter? Um, what if she was paraplegic? You know, um, how much yeah. easier is it then to suggest, well, it looks like you're suffering a lot. You do have depression and you are suicidal and you're clearly telling me that you want to die. Um, why don't we consider that as a, a possibility?
0: And I think this is it. illustrates, again, this extraordinary difficulty about... Um, the law and and operating within a legal framework because the situation is exactly analogous to what happens in the UK concerning abortion where if the patient meets the criteria for an abortion because for instance the unborn baby the fetus has some kind of abnormality and if the obstetrician fails to inform the patient that they meet the law, uh, then the obstetrician will be sued or may be sued, can be sued, by the patient subsequently that they were not informed. So so once an option, a legally, uh, a medical option becomes legally available, there becomes an implicit duty you have to tell the patient. So Mm -hmm. the analogous situation would be, I've got cancer, I've got terrible pain, I go to see my physician, my physician tells me about all this uh, pain relief medication and so on, but fails to tell me that I could have euthanasia, that I could be killed, even though I do meet. And it's only a year later that I discover that I could have been, had the the euthanasia a year ago i can then sue the physician because i've had a year of additional pain that i didn't know anything about so so So, this is the problem isn't it and
2: and that was actually incorporated into the policy and i'm not sure that whoever crafted the policy was necessarily thinking about you know how this would affect um, patients who have mental illness um they said that you need to inform them or even like make a referral for a medically assisted death in a timely fashion um, essentially to reduce any further unnecessary suffering i guess um, however it, when we're dealing with psychiatric illnesses or even you know brain injuries, the time to recover takes time <laughs> there's no other way around it, and oftentimes if you're trying to overcome um A mental illness and going through the recovery route, the experience of that is is painful. (laughs) Sometimes things have to get worse before it feels better. And doing that work, facing and confronting things that we've tried to keep suppressed and buried and and just rather not think about, it's tough. And many people would say who who suffer from both a physical illness and an emotional or psychological illness um, would say that I can deal with the physical pain, but the psychological suffering is really the thing that undoes me. And so, I don't want to minimize psychological suffering because it is it is very painful, you know. And um, but I still question whether the approach to helping somebody experience that distress and helping them through it, whether whether our approach to offer death as a solution is is the best solution. Well the thing is if if the colleges expect us to provide a medically assisted death in a timely manner, we are not allowing patients the time that they would need to actually recover. So how many patients would be would we be, you know, ending their lives unnecessarily when they could have had a chance to recover if we had just given them that time and be able to help them to bear that suffering in that time with the hope that they are going to get through this and and we know that to be able to predict accurately that the person in front of you who's suffering from a mental illness is not going to get better to to be able to make that determination we can't it's it's guesswork right mm-hmm. so the way that the law is crafted is um, in order to be eligible for an assisted death, you have to make the determination that the illness that the person is experiencing is irremediable. That is the key term. But we actually don't have any ability to determine accurately that a person with mental illness has an irre- irremediable illness. Um, and I was just saying to your dad earlier, I, I can't predict that in my patients. There are some who have been considering having a medically assisted death and then a year later they come back to me nothing has really changed externally in their circumstances but with all the time that has been invested in helping them to learn more about themselves to become more accepting to be, be more self-compassionate internally they experienced a shift and they recognized that there was still meaning and purpose in their life and that they didn't have to be you know perceived as a burden that they still had something to offer And that shifted them from wanting to die to then finding new reason to live. But that took about a year for them to get to that level. And all I did as a psychiatrist was just simply to be there with them, to witness to their suffering, to hold a safe space for them so that they could work through these things internally. And that was what made the difference can I predict that this is going to happen? I can't. Some patients might not reach that, or they might need 10 years in order to reach that stage. As a physician, I don't have um, a crystal ball to tell me what is going to happen.
0: That's right. And certainly working as a doctor, you see that time and time again, don't you, that um, how utterly unpredictable the future is, how how people can change their diseases, both physical and psychiatric can can change dramatically and this idea that we can say oh this one is hopeless we absolutely know this is irredeemable again irremediable it's it it's it doesn't make sense does it when when we're actually practicing on the ground
2: yeah and and what kind of messaging does that give to our patients too if the physician is expected to say i can assist you with an earlier death does that not imply that you have kind of given up and that the physician themselves has lost hope that they're going to get better i mean that's a pretty devastating message to receive if i was a patient i would like my physician to be firmly grounded and say like no matter what happens i'm gonna walk with you through this we'll keep working on this together that would give me hope to be given the message well if all else fails then i can just help you to end your life That's not very hope-inspiring.
0: You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.
1: I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, which was that you you decided in yourself as a psychiatrist that you weren't going to... Going to recommend made for any of your patients. You didn't believe that it was the the kind of compassionate thing to do as their physician. How is that decision? Is that a is that decision possible? Do you do you have the right of conscientious objection? Do you are you are you obliged to kind of hand a patient over to a, a more pro made colleague of yours? Um and and how is the kind of college in on Ontario responding to doctors like yourself who are trying to opt out of the whole system?
2: So that's an excellent question. Um, within the law, I mean, there's the preamble to Bill C-14. It said that no doctor should, um, who, who doesn't want to be uh, involved in these procedures, they don't need to be. However, the way that the colleges have framed their expectations is that even if you have a conscientious objection to being implicated in uh, medically assisted death in terms of, you know, inserting the the lethal syringe yourself, um, we still have a duty to refer our patient who is requesting this to a colleague who would be able to provide for that service. And so this is something that we've been trying to fight in court unsuccessfully. Um, the court actually did not. So this was the, um, Court of Ontario did not rule on the issue of conscience, but only on religion um, and said that even if a physician has religious beliefs that indicate they um, sorry, it, they have moral objections to um, euthanasia and assisted suicide, um, it's okay to infringe upon the religious beliefs of the physicians because the patient's rights um, take precedent. And so they didn't actually talk about conscience per se, um, but my response to that would be, why are you in, in, enacting policies that suppress the conscience of physicians, conscience being what one knows or believes to be right and wrong? And so what are the the policy implications of this if you're telling physicians that they must suppress their judgment about what is right and wrong and encourage them to do something that they believe is bad for their patients or wrong. Uh, This at a very fundamental core level is something that puts patients' safety at risk. And so at this point, it really becomes an individual question then for the physician. How do they expect to carry themselves under these circumstances? And how are they going to choose to respond um, when the college is expecting them to do something that they believe is morally uh, reprehensible
0: and do you think uh, if the um, the government were to pass this um, further amendment to allow uh, medical killing, euthanasia in cases of pure mental illness without any other physical problem, um, how do you feel personally, Savara? Do you think it's going to be possible for you and for other psychiatrists who believe as you do to, to carry on? Practicing in your position, do you is it is it, is it putting you in an, in an impossible position? I mean, I know that's a pretty hard question to ask, but what's your thinking about it?
2: So you know, when I, I first graduated, I had thought of working in psychosocial oncology actually, um, because I, I saw the value in journeying with people even to the very end and helping to prepare people for a good death in in terms of working out all the psychological kinks that they might have. Um, I decided not to pursue that just because when I graduated in 2015, I knew that this law was coming down. And I thought, well, to work in palliative care, I would just be walking into the lion's den at that point. And uh, it'd be uh, I would probably have to face these scenarios uh, a lot more frequently. So um, let's just do general psychiatry. (laughs) But, you know, you can't run away from these things. So it has, the issue has pursued me even in in my profession. And to be honest, it's very tempting to say, you know, I'm just going to give up. Uh, I don't want to have to deal with this. Um, Why not just work in another profession like therapy, (laughs) you know, as counseling? Um, The only reason why I have a legal ability to end a person's life is because of my medical license. And if that's the case and I didn't go into medicine to kill people, why would I want to continue working in this? And there have, I have colleagues who have left the province of Ontario originally when this law came out and they were um, really unfriendly towards people who had um, issues of conscience about this. I've had colleagues who have left. I've had colleagues who have stopped working in palliative care. I've had colleagues who have retired early because they don't want to have to deal with this. But you know, I'm still early in my career. Uh, I still have a long ways to go. And I think giving up would just be taking the easy way out. And so I do intend to continue working in this field as long as it's possible. If my license isn't taken away from me, I don't want to stop working. I believe that my, my work is meaningful and that I am making a difference in people's lives. And some of my patients who had previously considered a medically assisted death thanked me and said, thank you for the work that you're doing. You are literally saving lives. Sometimes I don't even realize the impact that I'm having, but when I hear the feedback like this from some of my patients and I recognize um, how important it was for me to be there in order to help them uh, or to facilitate that internal shift that they had, I recognize that the work that I am doing is important. And so I do intend to continue and and work in the system and and try to make it better right um and how can we change the culture so that people also realize the reasons why i believe what i believe and why i approach clinical care the way i do i do this because i believe that it is better for the patients (laughs) it's better for society it's better for our communities um that's why I do it, and I'll, I'll try to continue doing this as long as I can.
0: It's great to hear, and I'd I'd really support and encourage you to do that. Uh, you know, it, in a Christian context, we're we're called to be salt and light in a society. And why why I think those two metaphors are so encouraging is that actually you only need a tiny bit of salt <laughs> to have a huge preservative influence. And you only need a tiny bit of light to illuminate an awful lot of darkness. So so the fact that as Christians who are trying to uphold the value of human life, we may feel like a tiny minority, doesn't mean that we can't have actually an influence outside much greater than we, we might imagine. I mean, one of the things we're talking about in the UK is, that, is if a law like this was passed, would it be possible to create euthanasia-free zones, would it be possible, for instance, to have clinics which were publicly uh, stated that we don't uh, offer euthanasia, it's a a safe place, you know, would it be possible to have hospitals, independent Mm -hmm. hospitals, which which preserved life and and took this this view?
2: That is a a wonderful idea, and and that is something that I I personally would like to further advance. I know that having safe spaces and sanctuaries like this that are life affirming um, is under threat because you know in Ontario we have Catholic hospitals that um, provide health care according to the values of the Catholic Christian faith and so euthanasia would be very contrary to that. However. When these hospitals are publicly funded, there's a lot of pressure from the government to say, unless you do exactly what we tell you to do, and if this is a legal procedure, then you must do it, otherwise we're going to remove your funding, Uh, which has happened, by the way, um, at a Delta hospice in British Columbia, where the board of directors did not want to allow euthanasia on their premises, and public funding was removed from them, and so this has been an ongoing battle, but you're right. I think if if we were to have a system where euthanasia and assisted suicide is legal, um, patients deserve to have a place where they feel safe, uh, an environment where they feel like they do not have to worry that their, patient, their the physician is going to put unsolicited on the table an assisted death as a as a potential solution or treatment option for them, and I think that this is something that um, our society should be requesting. You know can we not make room for having people of both sides and for those who, who want to be life-affirming, that they're given the space and the, the safety to be able to do that uh, without feeling like they're being discriminated against? Um, I think in a, a progressive society where we're supposed to be tolerant of all different views, this is probably the, the least thing that we could do to to be able to respect everybody's opinions on this. Very contentious That's absolutely issue. right.
0: And and what's more, I have a, a suspicion that if it was possible to create those uh, safe places, those institutions would turn out to be incredibly popular. I think the great, you know, mass of the public would beat a path to the door to be yes. looked after by physicians and nurses and other professionals who they knew were committed. Human life. I mean, this is not a a tiny minority interest. I mean, that's the the paradox, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I, I think it would be possible for this threat that's coming, which is coming around the world, to actually represent an opportunity, an opportunity, a new opportunity for developing distinctively, quotes pro-life. Establishments which which value human life. And in some ways, we're, we're putting the clock back to many noble Christian institutions in the past.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And, I mean, even if you were to look at non-Christians, like the Hippocratic Oath that we used to have to take as medical professionals that has been changed, um, I don't think Hippocrates was Christian, but he recognised that there was an importance, there was a value in not intentionally ending the lives of his patients, even when he was requested to do so by the patient. And so he was living in a time when um, people could approach their doctors and, and be poisoned or, you know, the doctors were the ones who held the knowledge of what could kill and what could save life. And so preserving that ethics of life is, precious, and we will not violate that. He, I I think he probably had a pretty successful medical practice, and so we should not forget some of these earlier tenets that, you know, Western civilization has been built upon, some of these fundamental principles. It is for the good of society, and I I truly believe that if the government was adaptable enough and tolerant enough to set up some of these life-affirming sanctuaries, it would help to retain a lot of people within the medical professional, uh, within the medical professional, including um, nurses and pharmacists who really just who went into the practice of medicine because they value life and, and want to protect it and preserve it. Um, and then it would be a win for the patients as well who, and their families who feel like they have a safe place to go. So can we not just work together to build a society, that is just inclusive of everybody, um, and I think that that would actually build a much stronger society and a healthier society.
1: We're kind of running out of time, but before we end, that I wanted to ask just briefly. You know, we've been talking about this, the kind of difficult road that lies ahead for you as a as a Christian life affirming doctor in in Canada over at the start of your career. How, how do you feel like the Canadian church has been engaged in this story do you feel kind of upheld and encouraged and supported by by Christians outside of the medical world H- have have Christians been engaged in the activism and you know now the law has changed in work to try and mitigate and the, the, the thing we, the things we've been talking about about mitigating some of the, the harmful effects of me
2: um well I think even within the the Christian realm there are differing views on this issue. So I, I wouldn't say that even within the the Christian faith communities that there's necessarily consensus there either. Um, but I would say that most of the, the Christian leaders that I have spoken to have been very supportive of the work that I've been doing and have been trying to provide messaging to the government to be, um, you know, tolerant and accepting of our views. But um, the Canadian government thus far has, has not really... Uh, really taken those, those concerns, I I believe, uh, to heart, really, I mean, you can see by the ongoing progression, (laughs) and the erosion of the laws that that's kind of where they're coming from. Um, But, you know, within my own faith community, I would say that, generally speaking, I I feel like I've been pretty well supported. Um, and, And I just want to comment on the previous comment about being light and salt. And I just really love that analogy. Um, as salt being a preservative. And we are called to be those, the, the light and the salt. And just a little bit, but a little bit can go a long ways. And each of us carry a light within us. And when we come together, that light becomes even stronger and brighter. And I believe that it is in this moment in time, in this history where we really need to be really authentic witnesses to what we believe to be true and good. And if we individually remain firm to that, uh, we can make a difference. Um, So, you know, the message is, don't be afraid, (laughs) we're going to get through this. And, uh, you know, we're called to bring hope to people. And I think we can do that when we are best authentic witnesses to what we truly believe.
1: Well that's a great place to, to draw a conversation to a close. Thanks so much, Sephora. Um it's been really fascinating for me personally and I'm sure for everyone listening to to get such an insight, such a thoughtful reflection on, on what it's like working in, as a psychiatrist in Canada at the moment. Um, thanks so much for all your insight. Um uh, and generously with your time, um, uh, if you'd like, if anyone listening would like to kind of dig into more into these questions around euthanasia and assisted suicide, as I mentioned last week, there are plenty of resources to read on, on Dad's website. That's johnwyatt.com. Uh, you can get in touch with us, um, as always, by emailing molad@premiere.org. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, we'll see you next week. Um, thanks for listening. Hello, Tim here. Just before we go, I wanted to let you know we're planning a special episode in the next month or so to mark the one-year anniversary of relaunching Matters of Life and Death as part of the Premiere unbelievable network. We're going to be dedicating an episode, or maybe even two, to answering questions from you, our listeners. They can be on any topic, perhaps something you've heard us talk about over the last year that you'd like to go deeper into, or maybe instead there's a new development in the news or science that you'd be interested to hear us chat about. We can't promise to answer every question we get, but we're definitely going to try to squeeze in as many as possible into this special omnibus episode. Nothing's out of bounds, so do get in touch now by emailing molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk Thanks very much.